Well, on Sunday Extra now, we're going to talk dogs, but not just dogs, the semiotics of dogs, which is the subject of an essay by Katrina Gulliver, cultural historian. She's written in E.ON about uh, the history of dog ownership and the trends that define it. And Katrina writes that simply owning a dog is an exercise in expressing our cultural values as our furry totems reflect them to the world. I spoke with Katrina Gulliver earlier. Thank you very much, Julian. Katrina, your first book was called Modern Women in China and Japan, Gender and Global Modernity Between the Wars. So my first question is, how did you come to be the author of an essay on the semiotics of dogs? Well, I think of myself more as a cultural historian, so I'm often fascinated by trends in popular culture Mm. as well as things like intellectual history. And dogs I particularly became interested in this aspect of dogs, during the lockdown when I was seeing prices for particular breeds just absolutely spiral out of control. And I thought this is just a fascinating phenomenon. It's a fascinating essay. You write in particular uh, about the heady mix of science and sentimentality that marked the Victorian era and that accompanied the rise of dog fancying and pedigrees. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, I think the rise of dog pedigrees and breeding we see come up in the 19th century. It's this time where you had this rising middle class. You hadn't suddenly had more people with a kind of disposable income they could put towards hobbies. I mean, we see a lot of other sort of hobbies emerge at this point. But dogs in particular, obviously people had always had dogs, but now you could have a specialist breed and you had the beginnings of dog shows and people taking their dogs and, you know, judging them on confirmation and actually breeding dogs for special characteristics in this way became much more of a fashion. And so you see the beginning of the kennel clubs that would then set the definition of a breed and say, you know, a a Labrador has to have these characteristics. And it's from this period that all of our breed identification really goes back to. Yes, indeed. And you describe in some detail the uh, the DNA detective work that's been done into poodles, which I found fascinating. Uh, could you tell us about that? Yes. Well, I mean, poodles are a perfect example, though they're not the only breed this sort of thing has happened to. And what I'm talking about is a genetic bottlenecking, uh, what anthropologists sometimes talk about as founder syndrome, when you have one individual massively overrepresented in in the population as an ancestor. And in poodles, it really um, became a focus because this overbreeding led to a lot of health problems. And they traced it back to one particular dog in the 1950s, who was a successful sire uh, fathering litters at various different kennels that turned out to be a bunch of champions. And so lots of breeders kept returning to that genetic pool. And of course, over generations, you get the result of a lot of inbreeding and health problems as a result of that which is quite interesting. And I loved the name of the dog in question, Anson Sergei. Yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? They always have these incredibly long names and he's known as Timmy. You know, the the (laughs) owners actually call him something completely different. Um, But indeed, because of that genetic bottleneck, as you've described it, uh, pedigree poodles, even in Australia today, share that heritage from Anson Sergei. Is that right? Yeah, quite a lot of them, particularly black poodles. Um, It's something that a lot of breeders are trying to address because it's been studied. And so there's uh, work, it's a poodle diversity project to try and um, improve the health and genetics of poodles out there. 
And Katrina, another interesting aspect of your essay is the observations you make about the, the, the fashion trends in breed selection and the sort of impact that that can have indeed on the health of the animals. Yeah, absolutely. And one trend we've seen in the last decade is uh, the types of breeds that are coming to the top of the list. It's uh, dogs like the pug or the French pug, these small terrier type dogs, but they have the very flat faces. You're probably familiar with the little, mm. little smushed up nose. Now, this is a characteristic that makes them look quite babyish and very cute. And that really has an appeal to people. It triggers this sort of nurture response in us. And there's a reason, therefore, that they're very popular. But that has led to overbreeding in certain breeds of that uh, type as well. And of course, to high demand for those dogs, they now go for thousands and thousands, French bulldogs and uh, dogs of that type. On Sunday Extra, we're speaking with Katrina Gulliver about the semiotics of dogs. And Katrina, another aspect of your essay, which I found really fascinating, because again, it resonated with things that you do hear very much uh, these days, was what you describe as the messaging of rescuing animals. Could you talk to us about that? Yeah, well, I think on the one hand, it's been very successful, the idea that, you know, adopt, don't shop, it's better to rescue an animal. And a lot of people have taken that on board, and I think that's in a really positive way uh, because it means that we have actually far fewer animals being euthanized in shelters. And the RSPCA's figures for Australia for the number of animals they have to put down, it has shrunk dramatically from tens of thousands decades ago to being, I think it's about 2,500 in 2019, which mm. you know is amazingly good news for anyone who cares about animals. And I think that's great. But it has also produced a secondary economy, you could say, in people presenting animals as rescues um, because people want the cachet of having rescued a dog. Mm. And of course, you know, where there's money, there's a market. And so you do get shady breeders, you know, then presenting their dogs as rescued animals so that people will take them. So it's problems of its own success, you could say, in terms of the rescue ideology. Indeed. And you even describe sort of the international trade in rescue dogs. Yeah, well, I mean, this has been a problem, I think, possibly less so in Australia because of the tight quarantine restrictions. I mean, it's, it's relatively difficult to bring an animal into Australia, whereas bringing animals into North America and the UK, for instance, there's a lot of importing of supposedly rescued animals from less wealthy countries. And there are a lot of questions asked about, are these really street dogs or are they basically coming out of puppy mills and being shipped abroad? to people who want to have rescued an animal. And I mean, part of the reason this is happening is there actually aren't as many dogs around to rescue in the West as there used to be. As I was saying, that's a good thing, but it does create this vacuum <laughs> of people, more people wanting to rescue a dog than there are necessarily dogs available. And Katrina, even though you have focused in your essay on dogs, I understand uh, that, you've, uh, that you're across the figures on cats as well. Yeah, and it's a fascinating element that people obviously are concerned about animals getting put down in shelters unnecessarily, which any animal lover should be. But when you look at the stats for Australia from the RSPCA, the number of cats they're putting down is much, much higher than the number of dogs. And I think that's quite interesting too, because it tells us about what our priorities are. Absolutely. And it probably means that we should look forward to another essay from you, Katrina, about uh, the semiotics of cats. Well, the problem is I'll go to the shelter and I'll adopt them all and then... <laughs> That will be a completely different story. <laughs>
What other trends do you think have emerged, particularly, I suppose, from the pandemic, as you noted earlier, which was a time where a lot of people adopted dogs? But I think that's led to a few uh, post-pandemic blues as well. Yeah, well, that's an interesting one. There's been, over the last year or so, a lot of stories of, you know, people who maybe (laughs) took in a dog during the pandemic, didn't know what they were in for, weren't happy with the dog, couldn't take care of the dog, returning it to the shelter or getting rid of it. And I'm not sure that that's really happening in the numbers that was reported. But I think most people who have taken on a dog have, have wanted to keep it. But I think we're seeing still the same sort of dogs ending up in a lot of shelters that always did, even before the pandemic. Indeed, yes. And I was, I was very amused also by your observation about the sleeping habits of dogs these days and how perhaps if Snoopy was written today, it'd have to be described differently. Yeah, well, I, I don't think many people keep their dog in a little little house in the garden anymore. <laughs> people have them in, in, in with them, which I think is nice in a way. It shows how much more attached we are. But there is this huge industry in people buying dog beds, dog pillows, little dog blankets. It's very cute, but it's amazing. And I think our grandparents would be shocked at how much people spend on pets these days. Well, Katrina Gulliver, it's been a great pleasure discussing uh, what you describe as the, the furry totems. Thank you so much for speaking with us on Sunday Extra. Oh, thank you very much, Julian. And Katrina Gulliver's essay is published in Eon Essays and it's about how dogs are symbolic containers of human hopes, desires and vices. Stream any ABC radio station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.